Hello and welcome to Rooftop, the UK's only dedicated roofing podcast brought to you by NFRC. I'm Phil Campbell. And I'm Pip Applegate. In this podcast, we interview industry figures, thought leaders and technical experts to make sure you are leading in roofing excellence. We will also bring you regular features which will include things like topical news discussions, technical tips and guidance to help you stay safe on site. We're once again recording from home as lockdown continues, so apologies in advance for any sound issues. So on this episode, we interview Fergus Harridance, Deputy Director for Construction at the Department for Business, Energy and Industrial Strategy. Fergus will be talking to us about the construction playbook and what this means for roofing and cladding contractors and manufacturers. So, Phil, should we get on with the news? What story do you have for us first? Well, Pip, it's about the announcement that the UK Roofing Awards 2020 are having to adapt to the ongoing COVID-19 restrictions. OK, so go on, tell us more. Well, the 2020 Awards live event had been postponed from last year due to COVID-19 to the 28th of May 2021. But with the recent announcements around lockdown restrictions, um, with no clear end date in sight, um, it, it looks unlikely that large-scale social, social gatherings like award ceremonies will be able to go ahead anytime soon, particularly not by May of this year. So this has meant, sadly, we've had to cancel the live event that we are scheduled for this year. Uh, it is a real shame, isn't it? So, I mean, what, what does that mean for those fantastic projects that were shortlisted? Well, that's the good news, Pip. Um, we are going to go ahead with the judging, and that means there are still prizes up for grabs. The calibre of the entries was so high, we really wanted to make sure there was some recognition for those projects, um, and we will still be announcing the awards. Absolutely. Okay, that makes perfect sense. Um, when's the actual judging due to take place, and, and also how are people are going to know if, if their project has been successful? Well, so um, we will be um, uh, judging the awards over the next few weeks and making an announcement in um, February on the winners and we'll be letting winners know directly and um, if they've been successful and we'll also be announcing this through the trade press and over social media. Okay and in our current somewhat 2D world that we're all living in at the moment what about the actual physical trophies? Yes so uh, we will still be providing 3D trophies um, <laughs> and hopefully be um, sending these out in person um, so that people still will be able to receive their prizes um, you know, um, personally. Uh, however, that, that is uh, obviously COVID-19 restrictions applying. Mm -hmm. And if we're not able to do that, they will still be sent by, via courier. Okay. And, and the best place for people to keep up to date on everything? Yeah. So the best place to go for the most up-to-date information um, would be on social media. So that's both Twitter and Instagram. And I would encourage everyone to follow the hashtags, hashtag RA2020 and hashtag Roofing Awards 2020 and we will be going through all of the shortlisted entries and giving them some exposure and then of course we'll be doing the big announcement of the winners as well in February on there too. Fantastic so watch this space. Absolutely. So Pip what have you got for us for this episode? Um, well this is a topic we've actually touched on before um, and we covered uh, an article about the Welsh National Trust property near your old stomping ground called um, Tradiga House. 
Oh, yeah. So it was something to do with uh, lead theft, wasn't it? Yeah, exactly that. Sadly, um, once again, there's been coverage in the news about heritage buildings and churches across the UK being targets of lead thefts, as you've just said. Um, and it's come into the news just earlier this month where four men were actually sentenced at Lincoln Crown Court to a total of over 19 years in prison. And it's following a spate of crimes which has affected more than 20 churches across the country, including some in Leicestershire, Wiltshire, Lincolnshire and Yorkshire. Well, I guess it's good that justice is being served at long last, but mm. uh, slightly concerning it doesn't seem to be just contained to one area. There seems to be a national problem. Yeah, absolutely. And and the thefts have taken place over a, a number of years. And, and this sort of total, if you like, was between 2018 and 2020. And they've targeted grade one listed and heritage buildings, some of which are over you know centuries old. And it's estimated that the lead thefts have caused over two million pounds worth of damage to these buildings. Gosh, uh, that's really not good news, particularly as uh, I imagine a lot of these churches and charities are struggling at this time as well. So some serious costs involved. Yeah, quite. And it's worth remembering, though, that it's not only the value of the lead itself, but there's obviously other damage that's caused during the lead removal. It's not going to be done professionally. Um, and also the possible unforeseen structural damage through water ingress, which, you know, kind of caused, can occur, sorry, during exposure. Um, and a one figure of £40,000 for repairs to a single church have been reported. So there's a real push for heritage properties and churches to protect themselves better. Yeah. So, I mean, if if somebody asks one of our members what you know they can do if if a particular property asks one of our members what can they can do to stop this happening what what kind of things would you advise for them to say? Well, some of these things are sort of more familiar. Um, for example, they can look to install things like security lights or CCTV or like a roof alarm. But there are even more clever options out there for them to consider um, of, of marking metal using forensic security marking technology. Um, and reassuringly, all of these things have proved to help reduce the threat of crime. And I believe that the security, the forensic security marking actually helped um, that Lincolnshire Constabulary prosecution um, of the gang that I mentioned. So, uh, so a lot of those seem like familiar security measures for any residential or commercial property to take, but the forensic marking does sound particularly interesting. Yeah, absolutely. Yes, it does indeed. Um, so I, I, as, as you said, I think if you're a contractor or supplier involved with heritage properties and, and can't see any active measures in place on a property that you're maybe working on, it's maybe worth mentioning some ideas to help um, deter them from being targeted in the future. Um, there's obviously a heap of information available online um, for people to research options themselves further. Yeah, so this is definitely one area to watch, isn't it? And let's hope that we start to see these crimes coming down. Yeah, absolutely. I'm sure it's something that we can all work collectively on um, to help protect our heritage properties. So, Phil, we started the year with some big news for the roofing industry, didn't we? Yes, we started 2021 with the fantastic news that someone known to many of us in the industry, Gordon Penrose, had received an MBE in the New Year's Honours for services to roof slating and tiling. That is fantastic news. Can you tell us a bit more about Gordon's background, his career? Yeah, so Gordon's um, been involved in the roofing industry for over 60 years. And for a large part of that has been heavily involved with NFRC. Um, from having to establish the Irish region, being one of the founding members there, um, chairing NFRC's competition committee, and eventually becoming the president of NFRC, and also the president of the International Federation for the Roofing Trade, the IFD. 
Um, he's currently honorary president for the Institute of Roofing. It really does sound an impressive career. Um, how did he actually start his career in roofing? Well, it all began when Gordon started as an apprentice for Dunfermline District Council. Um, he then went on to set up Penrose Roofing in 1967, and the rest is history. Okay, and apprenticeships and skills has been a big focus for him since that, hasn't it? Yeah, so that's something that Gordon is very passionate about. In his own words, he says that a large part of his working life has been focused on having to train the next generation of roofers. And that has always been an ambition of his to provide a career path for young people through apprenticeships. This can really be seen through the various skills competitions he has organised throughout his career, um, including selecting teams for international competitions like Skills Build UK and the IFD World Championships. So a very well-deserved honour then. Yes, many congratulations, Gordon, on behalf of all of us at the NFRC. So today we are joined by Fergus Harridance, the Deputy Director for Construction at the Department for Business, Energy and Industrial Strategy. Fergus is responsible for delivering the construction sector deal and is working to deliver a more productive and sustainable construction sector in the UK. We've invited Fergus on to this episode, however, to speak about the construction playbook. You may have read about this in the construction press or heard people talking about it, but you perhaps don't know what it's all about. Well, we hope Fergus today will be able to give you a bit more information about the playbook, why it's important, and what this will mean for roofing and cladding contractors and suppliers. Fergus, welcome to Rooftop. Uh, Thank you, Philip. So could you just give us an overview on what the construction playbook is and, and why it was created? Well, the construction playbook is an attempt by the government to reset its relationship with the construction industry to put it on a a more strategic and longer term footing with the aim of of creating a more sustainable um, and stronger relationship that benefits both sides. So from the perspective of the government, it's the opportunity to work with the industry to drive improvement in the delivery of construction projects and programmes that we fund, whether that's in terms of improving the delivery of the actual product the performance of the built asset once it's produced, or in terms of achieving some of the wider objectives that we're looking for, whether in relation to things like net zero carbon or delivering, leveling up wider social values such as investment in skills. And the reason it was set up is we're trying to replicate the success of uh, an initiative that we launched a few years ago in the area of outsourcing. And what we did was develop a, a playbook which covers all aspect of the the service tender design, scoping, market engagement, procurement, and then ongoing contractual management for um, outsourced services. And the view was taken that there was a real opportunity now to launch a similar sort of initiative in the area of construction. Uh, Because again, this is a sector with which the government does an enormous amount of business and one with which we do need a much stronger and, and longer term relationship than we've traditionally had, uh, where it's the relationship that we've had with the industry has been based on short term contracts for individual projects. And we don't think that that's delivered the best value for either side. That makes absolute sense. And I think uh, one question we've obviously got, first of all, Fergus, is, is many of our members will be asking, what's in it for the supply chain in terms of, you know, how, how does it affect them? Uh, I think fundamentally what it means for the construction supply chain 
it is that there will be earlier and much more comprehensive engagement of firms within the supply chain and their involvement in, in the delivery of construction projects and programmes. So rather than the traditional approach of, of government working with, say, a designer uh, and a prime contractor, what we're going to be looking to do is facilitate a, a dialogue with a much wider range of firms about how projects and programmes can best be delivered. Um, and what we want to use the playbook to do uh, is to ensure that we have a better and more consistent approach to, for example, undertaking um, market sounding exercises, uh, incorporating modern methods of construction into the delivery of construction projects, uh, and also working with the industry and all the firms within the supply chain to make sure that we're delivering innovation, continuous improvement, and better quality as part of the procurement and then the management of contracts for construction projects and programmes. And a corollary of that is that we do want to see um, better and fairer treatment of firms in the supply chain. So, for example, we want better improved payment practices, potentially digitised payment practices, and we want a much greater degree of transparency about payment and contractual practices and what's actually happening in relation to the treatment of the supply chain and the delivery of construction projects to make sure that some of the contractual provisions that we have with, with tier one contractors are being replicated and cascading down the, cascade down the supply chain and people are being paid within 30 days uh, and things like that. And, and Fergus, what are you using for the criteria around payment? Do you have a code of practice or anything like that? Well, the, the government um, has established uh, in, in the procurement regulations that the payment down the supply chain should be within 30 days. Um, that's the period in, within which we aim to pay our suppliers. We expect that to be replicated throughout that supply chain. Um, but we do also want to monitor overall payment performance. Uh, and you, you'll be aware of some of the provisions that have been um, brought in recently where firms can be disqualified from bidding for public sector contracts for serially poor payment practices. Um, and what we want to do is create really the, the same kind of dynamic that we've created by requiring firms to report on their payment performance publicly is to incentivise better performance and give us the ability to reward firms that are do consistently treat the firms in their supply chain well. Well, this sounds all very positive, um, but what does the government expect from industry in return for all of this? Um, the construction playbook has been developed as a very collaborative endeavour. I've spent 20 years in the civil service and I would honestly say there has never been a policy that I have been involved in that has been developed with this level of direct industry engagement. We've undertaken over a thousand hours of industry engagement activities, whether it's big plenary sessions online, whether it's in small groups. And one of the positive spillover benefits, really, uh, of, of the current lockdown situation and difficulty that people have had in holding physical meetings is that by forcing us to work online, we've been able to work with people and collaborate with people in that way. So there's an enormous amount of industry input that's gone into the design of the playbook and the development of the various measures and chapters. And we want that to continue into the implementation phase because this isn't just something that government can do. We can obviously change the way in which we engage with the industry, 
we procure from the industry, the way in which we manage contracts with the industry. Um, but equally, we need the industry to invest in its own capabilities to deliver contracts in new ways, whether it's through embedding digital technologies down the supply chain, investing in uh, modern methods of construction, being able to, to meet the standards required by the, um, the BIM framework, or actually looking at ways of continuously improving the quality of delivery over the period uh, of, of the contract. So we, we really see this as being the start of a shared process of transformation and business change, which we hope will come to fruition in three to five years time. Uh, the end point for us is that we want both a, a better return from the taxpayer in terms of what we invest in, but we also want to see a stronger more sustainable, more financially robust, more productive, profitable and better performing industry. So with regards to the specialist and um, specialist contractors and suppliers, obviously kind of thinking about our trade and supplier members here, I suppose, um, how can they start to prepare for the playbook? And do you think any of their processes will need to change significantly? Mm. Um, I mean, I think the first thing to say is, well, please do read the playbook. It's 70 pages, but we've tried to read it, write it in a very accessible way uh, and make it clear in each section what the key points are. Uh, and hopefully um, firms, when they do read it, will find that there's a lot in there that they like, they appreciate, and, and they will think it provides a good framework for the future relationship between um, government and the industry. Um, but in terms of what suppliers should really start thinking about, um, firstly, uh, I, I think it is is looking at, at the, the technological side and the innovation side and asking what they need to do to be able to work in a world where more is going to rely on <clears throat> delivery through the use of digital technologies, mm. off-site manufacturing. Um, we also want firms to think how they can make their own operations more sustainable, in, in particular drive down the level of carbon emissions mm -hmm. linked to their own operations, but also the, the, the products and some of the materials that they use. Um, ask the question of how they can deliver social value through contracts, through investing in, in workforce skills, uh, training apprenticeships, or, or potentially in terms of doing other things like promoting increased biodiversity in relation to some of the projects that they, they work on. And then also, it's about how they interact with other firms that they're going to be part of the supply chain of, um, including their own subcontractors, as well as the, uh, the higher tier contractors that they work for. And what is it that they can do to build stronger uh, and more sustainable relationships with the firms that they need to interact with in order to deliver projects effectively? Yeah, absolutely. Do you think there's going to be sort of any concerns from maybe some of the more specialist areas that have been brought in at the engagement level um, that there's sort of that possible time of investment that they're obviously giving their time into a project and then there's sort of no guarantee that they might actually be rewarded at the end through the tender process being successful, a bit like the sort of, you know, specification switch happening after mm -hmm. you've made a lot of legwork at the beginning. Do you think that's sort of concern for people? Um, I think what we're asking to people to do does require an investment of, of time and effort, mm -hmm. uh, and it is going to be a big commitment for firms. But equally, what we want to do is to really shift the balance. So when we um, 
undertake market sounding exercises, we do want to get a lot more input from specialist contractors and other firms in the supply chain so that we can get the specification right Mm -hmm. uh, and be clear about what it is we want to procure in advance of the procurement exercise starting. Because we're, we're well aware that one of the big problems within the industry is that designs are inadequate, work starts too early, errors are made or designs are then changed, work has to be redone or or errors have Mm. to be corrected. We would really like to try and drive that out of the the, the delivery of production programmes. So I think if there's one way in which the industry is going to um, hopefully be working differently as a result of this, it's going to be putting in more investment up front in terms of market engagement, working with us on the design of things, um, and the front-end process before work starts on site. But we would hope that the, the corollary of that is that when firms are undertaking work for the public sector, the delivery risk to them is going to be a lot lower. Mm-hmm. There are not going to be the risks of costs suddenly escalating because they are asked to rework. And we also want to offer businesses and successful supply chains much longer term and higher value contracts. So it's moving away from saying we'd like you to deliver five schools in one year to saying actually mm-hmm. we'd be keen for you to deliver 25 or 30 schools over five years so we can build in the ability for you to innovate, adapt and improve over the period of the delivery of that contract, which hopefully delivers better results at the end of the process for everybody. Yeah, and that longer term certainty be very welcome for our, particularly for our manufacturing members that can make those investments. Um, so I think one of the questions that a lot of our members are going to be asking is, is, is this just another attempt just to try and change the industry? Is it another report that's just going to sit on people's shelves gathering dust? And, and how will you as a government make sure this is, is enforced and, and how will you, you monitor it to make sure it's effective? Well, the good news is uh, that this isn't just another report. This is an approach that we are committed to embedding across central government and its agencies. So it will be mandatory for all central government departments and their key uh, delivery agencies, and I'm talking about organisations like Highways England or Network Well, the Environment Agency, to adopt the playbook and integrate this in their approach to construction procurement. Now, in relation to, to the wider public sector, it won't be mandatory, but we've been working quite closely with, with local government in England. Um, through the Department of Health and Social Care, we've been working with the, the National Health Service, and we hope to see that this will also start to be adopted, or these elements of this will start to be adopted across the wider public sector as well. Uh, and increasingly, they will, it will start to influence um, the way in which the private, private sector works as well. So as well as it being mandatory uh, for departments and agencies to implement this, they're going to be supported by an implementation programme that's going to be managed out of the Cabinet Office, which is going to work with individual organisations in government to improve their capability. And there are going to be performance metrics set for individual departments in relation to specific projects and programmes on things like, for example, what element of um, modern methods of construction have they incorporated, um, what's the payment performance in relation to, to the supply chain. And there's also going to be a qualitative assessment of how they're managing the process end to end, because that, that's really what the construction playbook sets out 
it's how to manage the process from end to end. So we don't just want people doing bits of it. We want to see the integration of this into their business operation so that the mm. play becomes the way in which things are done. Mm. It's not a book of ideas that you pick the ones that you <laughs> like out of and then try and integrate those into your existing processes. Okay. So hopefully we will see over the next three or four years real progress being made towards in- embedding this in government and industry will see a real change in the way in which government procures and contracts construction projects with it. Mm. Yeah, so I was going to ask around that supply chain aspect. So obviously, you know, the tier ones will be meeting these criteria, but how do you guarantee that that filters down, say, to the, the subby who's just going to be working on a project and may not have any ideas about the playbook, but will have to meet these higher standards, particularly around things like building safety and health and safety, mm-hmm. meeting certain competency standards, for example. How do you ensure that you've got that kind of accountability in that supply chain? Um, I mean, this is something that is still developing, Mm -hmm. but uh, um, the intention is that part of the new approach will involve a much greater degree of transparency. So we will be moving away from the the situation where the client just deals with the tier one contractor Mm -hmm. to a a situation where we would expect um, a consortium of firms involved in the delivery of of one of our projects and programs to be providing us with much more comprehensive and accurate information about all aspects of the way in which they're delivering this, which includes the the way in which they are managing and engaging the supply chain. And what we're also going to be doing is monitoring and benchmarking project delivery and, and program delivery so that we can identify those firms and and those consortia that are doing best and and our assumption is that those firms and and, um, supply chains that are most effective in delivery are likely to be the ones which are are best managed and where you've got the highest level of integration and and communication Mm -hmm. between firms and we want to use the best uh, as the benchmark Mm -hmm. and challenge those firms and, and other uh, consortia that are not performing as well to improve their performance over time so that they are achieving the same standards as the best performers. Mm-hmm. Absolutely makes sense. Um, so you mentioned obviously be able to read a copy of the, the playbook. Um, where can we direct people to for more information and to get their hands on a, on a copy? Um, it's published on the Cabinet Office website. Uh, if you Google construction <laughs> playbook, you will definitely find it. Uh, <laughs> it's there. And um, in addition, we are working through the Construction Leadership Council to promote the construction playbook. We're talking to a lot of trade associations and to a lot of businesses directly. There are going to be a number of events. Some are going to be run by um, business. Uh, Some of them are going to be run by government. And I think in time, uh, quite a few will be run by individual departments and agencies that are actually the client for firms within the supply chain. So over the next six months or so, there's going to be um, plenty of opportunities for you to attend some of these events and actually pose questions to some of the people who've either been involved in the design of the policy of this or who are actually involved in in the implementation of it, including people who will be um, procuring uh, construction work based on the principles and the process that's set out in the playbook. Good stuff. 
Great. And uh, and listeners, can uh, our chief executive wrote a summary of this in Total Contractor magazine, um, which um, listeners can, can find. We'll put a link to that. Um, and also, um, we, we engage with the Construction Leadership Council regularly and, and with Fergus and his team. So if anyone listening has any feedback or any questions, please do let us know. And we can we can pass those on. And through our membership of Build UK and the Construction Policy Association, we have had in, involvement with the playbook as well. So make sure you engage with us as, as, as a trade association and we'll make sure we pass on that feedback to, to the relevant people. Um, so Fergus, is there anything else you want to add before we, we, we come to a close? Um, just to say that this really, really is an opportunity. Um, it, it's an initiative which I think is widely supported across the, the, the public and private sectors. Uh, and it's an initiative that we really do want to succeed. So please do um, get on board uh, and work with us to achieve that. Great. Thank you very much, Fergus. And so now time for our technical tip with Gary Walpole. Hi, Gary. What have you got for us for this episode? Yeah, this episode, we're going to discuss the NFRC guidance document um, working in windy conditions. So, yeah, it's um, what we've done as a technical team. We haven't updated it as such, but we've reviewed it and brought it into the 23rd century and obviously the marketing team have supported us with this so it's um it's had a bit of a spring clean shall we say phil very good so i mean has much of the content changed or is it still the key the key messages no the key messages are the same um and the key messages have all stayed the same through throughout the um uh four versions of uh, uh, the uh, four variations of the document. But it's basically understanding um, the effects wing can have on roofing work. And also, um, you know, it can obviously have quite a big effect on program as well. Mm-hmm. So it's it's one of our most downloaded documents, I would say, and more so from external bodies. Um, the HSE um, reference it in HSG 33, for example. So it's quite an important document, and it's important that we look after it and review it and give it a refresh and just make mm-hmm. sure it's current. So, Gary, what would you say the key messages are of this guidance note? Well, the, the key message is... Um, understanding wind speeds when working at height so and also the challenges the weather can bring to a project and you know if we look at sheeting and cladding for example some of the sheeting materials used are quite long and large so they could be 10 20 meters long so you know the consideration of how the wind's going to affect the movement of them sheets is is paramount to a to a safe installation. But also with slating and tiling, you know when you're installing um, uh, uh, the underlay and um, waterproofing sheets of RBM, for example, setting out before they're bonded, big sheets of single ply, and it's also understanding that the 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 wind at the ground level is going to be different to the wind at height. So the wind speeds at height are going to be greater than the wind speeds at ground level. So it, it really is 
helping our members educate all duty holders on their responsibilities to safe working. I mean, there have been cases where people have been blown from roofs. So like I say, it is an important health and safety guidance note. And so Gary, where can listeners um, find out more information about this topic? Yeah, so the guidance is actually free to download from our website for everyone. Um, as I said, it is referenced in HSE guidance. Um, so it is a well-known document and lots of um, principal contractors, for example, um, often phone up the help desk requesting a copy. So it helps them plan their works. So, yeah, like I say, it's free to download. Download the new copy. If you've got any feedback, come back to the technical and training team. We'll be pleased to hear it. But hopefully you'll like the look of it. Um, it is more modern now. Great. So, you know, one could even say you'd be blown away by the guidance it contains. Well, <laughs> that, that. <laughs> <laughs> you said that, not me. <laughs> Thank you very much, Gary. That's not a problem. So that's it for this episode of Rooftop. Thank you to Fergus for being our guest on the show and to Gary, as always, for his technical tip. We hope that you've enjoyed listening today. Please do share with your friends and colleagues via social media and we hope that you can tune into the next episode. So it's goodbye from me. And goodbye from me. Back on the